Welcome to Fully Yours, a podcast about food, the sacred, and ordinary moments of extraordinary belonging. Hey, this is Christy. This is Eva. And this is Chloe. And we're three friends who met in seminary and absolutely love to sit down and talk about food and meaning and what brings us together around the table. We're so happy to be together again today and talking about a special topic, uh, one that I was trying to pull, Christy, I was trying to pull the whole, we love salt and flour and yeast, but it just doesn't sound the same with we love dill pickles and <laughs> without introducing the topic. So maybe, maybe you can do that. We, we are pickles. three fermented friends. Furry. Um, Chloe, what are your yes. favorite fermented foods? Is it also pickles? Oh gosh, I mean sourdough, sourdough, and kombucha, and chocolate, and beer, and wine. I didn't know that chocolate was fermented. There's a lot of fermented foods. Yes, and vinegar. Oh yes, vinegar. Yes, yeah. the list goes on. I love kosher dill pickles. <laughs> My favorite brand is called Rick's Picks. <laughs> it's funny because my dad's name is Rick. So anytime my family buys them, we just, and I'm home where my parents live, we like to just walk around the house and say that a lot. <laughs> and he thinks it's, he thinks it's real weird. <laughs> He might not be the only one who thinks it's weird. <laughs> yes, get the snort. Well, you know, <clears throat> I can't pass up a good gherkin. <laughs> That's gherkin spelled with a G, not a J. <laughs> Isn't it like G-H? It's yes. really strangely spelled. Yes. Hmm. Also known, known as a, also known as cornicot. <laughs> they are. I don't know what they are. Like French? Is that the French name for them? You know, I think it's used interchangeably. I'm French Canadian, and I have no idea if this is anything to do with being French Canadian. But growing up, we always had. A poo-poo platter. Yeah, it's totally not French-Canadian. That's Hawaiian. Um, but we would have poo-poo platters before our meals. And we would make uh, put out tons of little plates and bowls on the counter. And we always had a good gherkin with a slice of cheddar cheese, mm. a little bit of gray poupon mustard. Um, yeah. So I'm definitely more kind of the vinegary, salty acidic taste mm. nice when it comes to pickle absolutely i like i like the balance of sweet and salty there's something about that i just can't i just can't do the sweet i will i do like our bread and butter pickles sweet they are yeah. i but do like spicy. those mm-hmm. yeah i like a spice mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so christy why are we talking about pickles 
we are talking about pickles because today we're talking about preserving time. Um, one of the thoughts that, that came through my mind, so I'm a photographer, um, and what I love is film photography because you capture a moment in that film and it's a literal moment. It's an image that's burned into the emulsion of the film. If you've ever held a negative, you can actually feel that image that's burned into the emulsion there. Um, it's, it's really, really neat. And it's a literal, I mean, it's a physical moment that is burned into that and etched into that film. One of the Mm. things that I love about preserves in terms of not only like jams and jellies and that sort of thing, but also in terms of fermentation, pickles and sourdough and, and vinegar, um, all of these things are preserving time. They're holding that, that vegetable or that fruit or that yeast, they're holding it in, in a way that not only transforms what it is, but it also in a lot of cases makes it more nutritious. So today we're talking about how, um, how this sort of preservation of time can provide a lot of concentration of those flavors and those nutrients. There's also a lot of health benefits in terms of probiotics. Um, there, there's also a preservation of culture. So in miso, for example, which is a fermented soybean product that's also got some rice in it. And I love cooking with miso. So we're going to talk a little bit about preserving culture. I mean, the list can just go on. Um, so I'm just, I'm curious what, what you guys think about um, just the concentration of flavor and nutrients. Like how are we preserving time in that way? One of my favorite parts of baking a loaf of sourdough um, is that kind of contrary to to most of the ways that I try to approach the kitchen because, you know, in the day-to-day, I'm trying to pull together a meal quickly. Um, sourdough requires time. It requires interaction with time because you don't want too much time um, the dough can become very sour, uh, but too little time, and there's not enough uh, s- space that's held for the yeast to have activity. Uh, so I think it was a, a cookbook that I read recently that talked about time as an actual ingredient. Mm. So it's in many ways mm. kind of it's it's a it's a piece, it's a part, it's integrated into um, into the bread itself. That's what I, that, that for me is one of the most tangible um, representations or manifestations of time in our food. And when you sit back and think about it, so many of our food processes has that element. Even if it's just sauteing an onion, mm-hmm. it's the heat, it's maybe the fat that you add, but it's also a process of time. You do it too short and the onion's still crunchy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a couple things that come to mind, and I'm definitely not a chemist, so I don't know all the science behind why this happens, but I've read that and experienced, I think, that, for example, if you're preparing fresh garlic for a sautéing a dish or something, that if you let it sit for three or four minutes before you put it in the pan, that it just adds so much more flavor Mm -hmm. um, and fragrance, because there's something about... There's like an enzyme that's released or something 
that just brings so much, just a little bit more intensity, um, but that adds so much more flavor. Um, oh, just even thinking about how time affects like raw fruits and vegetables when they sit in the fridge. Like yesterday, so I got some, I think they were, I think they were gherkin cucumbers. No, 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 I don't know what they were. They were pickling cucumbers mm-hmm. um, from the farmer's market. And I, I probably got them two, two and a half weeks ago. But cucumbers can be hardy and last a while, but I left them in the plastic bag that they came in. Mm-hmm. And so some of the outside start like was starting to soften. And mm-hmm. um, So when I first opened it, I thought, oh, I need to throw this out. This is starting to go south and um but just decided like just to peel just to like cut the outside layer off um and a lot of the flavor was still intact and it was I mean it still tasted fresh it's also a different variety of cucumber than I think you usually buy in the store um but yeah so it was just interesting to sort of think about how a lot of those processes of time, I think, get left out in the way that we typically engage with food in the grocery store and the way that our kind of industrial food system decides, like, when things are past their prime, when maybe they're not. Um, yeah, so that that's a little bit different than talking about fermentation, but I guess I was just thinking about how do we, how do our constructs of time interrupt the very natural processes of time that are going on in these in like the food that we eat and prepare and absolutely and that's a step towards this whole idea of preservation too uh this very human uh, engagement with the food that we're eating to sort of push back on on that natural process in a way Mm -hmm. which is interesting and how out of that is this transformative element where like you're saying christy a food can actually be, our, our body can absorb the nutrients differently in, in some cases mm-hmm. when something's been fermented or, right. uh, or has, have these different time processes that we've, we've used with them. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's funny, Eva, that you bring up like the freshness of food, because when I'm in the grocery store, I look at a lot of leafy green vegetables and I'm like, uh, I'm a single person, you know, cooking for myself. All of this is going to go bad. And so I've actually moved more towards hardy greens, which are actually, they tend to be better for you. And maybe this is like an evolutionary thing um, where they last longer. They last longer in the fridge. They don't wilt as easily. Right. Um, And if they do end up wilting, I end up sauteing them anyway, and they're going to wilt anyway. Um, So just coming up with creative ideas when time is not necessarily on our side and things are starting to to go south as, as you put it go south go south um another cool thing chloe that you mentioned is kombucha did you mention kombucha do you make your own no i tried it's you know it scared me a little bit you know and that's the funny thing it scares me too um so just the other day my mom and i were making blueberry jam and she was like, oh, I mean, we could can it. You know, we have the giant pot that you can put it in. And mm-hmm. um, we have the sanitized jars and we have everything that we need. But it's just kind of like scary, right? Yes. Like, <laughs> and, and especially with kombucha, like you're kind of 
I don't think you're making alcohol. I don't think that there's a chance of you making alcohol because I think what happens in kombucha is that it's a bacteria fermentation, bacterial fermentation, whereas with um, alcoholic products, it's a yeast fermentation, I think. We're going to fact check that and we'll include a link in the show notes. Um, But... (laughs) Uh, there's this really, uh, I think I may have tooted the horn on Bon Appetit, but, um, they have a YouTube channel and one of the guys on that channel is Brad and Brad makes, um, kombucha and he talks about how you need the mother SCOBY, um, in order to start the fermentation process. And the really cool thing about that is like, nobody knows where SCOBY came from. Like, it's just this thing and you peel off a layer and give it to your friends and then they can start making kombucha. Like nobody knows where the original one came from. Um, mm. So it's it's another like stream of history, uh, which I think is, mm. is really beautiful. Yeah. And just the sharing that's involved. Absolutely. Which you can kind of trace in other fermentation processes as well. Um mm-hmm you know, a sourdough starter, you let it grow. There's discard or on every time you feed it, there's extra that can be given to a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, Oftentimes this sort of stuff is tied to memories. And uh, I, this is a sermon that I remember from, from way back when um, maybe close to 10 years, I think. Yeah, maybe close to 10 years now. I went to school in Florida and I went to a a community church down there and the pastor was talking about friendship bread (laughs) and she said that (laughs) she said that um, one Sunday afternoon after church, she went to make bread with this this starter that someone had given her and she let it rise And she walked away for maybe an hour or two. And it's Florida, so it's warm. So the yeast thrives. And she said it was spilling all over the counter and all down the the counter and down the cabinets. Like this this thing was huge. Um, And so she was saying like that's for her, that illustration was was God's love. That was the divine love that that overflowed so much so that we couldn't capture it, you know. Um, And so we we share a little bit of it. Right. Right. We share a little bit of it with our friends and that grows as well. Um, So that was that was really cool. And for whatever reason, that that particular memory of that story stands out. Um, And and each, you know, each sourdough starter has a history. Um, My dad has a sourdough starter that he's kept for, gosh, close to two years or so. Um, And he keeps it in the fridge and he feeds it every day and. It's just, it's, it's really, really neat. It's really neat. It is. Yeah, my dad mm-hmm. has a starter from, it's a Levant starter, and I don't really know what that means. It He got it from a friend who learned, I think she went to culinary school and learned wow. about this particular type of sourdough called, that it started from a Levant starter, so. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he very diligently feeds it every few days, and um it's like his little pet chloe where did you get your starter you know i got my first starter from simple church you that's did. the starter that i learned on yes and i brought it with me when i moved across the country we kept it in a little cooler in the car oh 
And then I got here and it just didn't make it. Oh, no. I I tried. Yeah, I I think I actually... Did you? I want... Was it you, Eva? I remember uh, I... My f- the first starter that I was given from Simple Church that did um, die before I moved, but one of one of the friends I had given it to, Eva, it might have been you uh, or another friend. Yeah, you gave me some. Yeah, uh, gave I me think some it was back. at the workshop that you led. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, wow. So it was oh pretty yeah, cool. I did give you some back because yes, it just like so. kept growing and growing and growing, yes. and I was like, I have more starters than I know what to do with. Yeah. So it's pretty neat um, that it came back to me for a while. And now, mm. now I'm working with a, a different one that a, a family member has given me. But That's cool. That yeah, I really started cool. one from scratch, and I don't know if it – I made one loaf with it, and it was pretty good. Um, so I still have it. I haven't baked in a couple of weeks, but it's just amazing to watch flour and water just sort of do their thing. Yep. What What do you think? So going back, I think that's pretty interesting how sometimes fermenting things, if it's not something we're used to or familiar to, either because it's not a part of each of our cultures or um, it's just something that's kind of gotten out of the norm. I mean, sourdough is mm-hmm. sort of having this big resurgence right now, but for a lot of people that wasn't something they were familiar with people are starting to make their own beer um Mm -hmm. so there's some things coming up but but there's some aspects of of fermentation that I know for me I have a cookbook that has a fermentation recipe for oatmeal fermented oats and you basically just leave the oats out on the I mean there's a whole recipe and method to it but there's something about that that I don't even want to, it, it feels kind of nerve wracking that something will go wrong and I'll eat spoiled food. And mm-hmm. I just wonder if where that reaction's coming from, um, yeah. and how some fermenting feels okay. And some feels kind of risky or unfamiliar or, yeah, that's such a good point. Well, and I think even from a cultural perspective, like I don't know. I think it can be reflective of our very, um, at times, like ethnocentric, like American culture that we're suspicious. And like, I'm generalizing, but I think we're often suspicious of cultures where like pickled and fermented foods are much more of a staple, like German sauerkraut or Mm. kimchi or, um, you know, lots of pickled vegetables. And um, Trevor, actually, who was on our last episode, traveled to Japan um, a couple of years ago for vacation and talked about like just his own experiments with a lot of the different fermented foods that, you know, and they serve like at every meal, like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And mm-hmm. wow. there were some that he was very like ready and willing to experiment with and try. And then there were others that just sort of felt like, Ooh, that's just like so outside of what I'm used to mm-hmm. that it feels risky and, so it is it is interesting to think about what what's going on there. Yeah. Right. Right. And I wonder how much um access to refrigerators mm. just how that's affected our culinary traditions and mm. and culture and maybe some of that's gone away for a while and but you bring up such a great point how 
if you look at almost any culture, every culture, there's different fermenting or preserving um, techniques and traditions, which is pretty, pretty fascinating. Uh, there's There was a book that I read a few years back. I'm not sure if I've mentioned it before on the podcast, but it's called Wild Fermentation by Sander Katz. Mm. And it was mm. a book I, I came across while I was on the, uh, on, at, at Adama, the Jewish farm. And they had it in their library there. And Sandar Katz is just this powerhouse of fermentation knowledge. And uh, the book is, I would really highly recommend it. But he goes through this history, this brief history of different ways that that cultures ferment things. And mm. um, yeah, just really explores the meaning of it and, and the health benefits. And so that was a huge wake-up call to me I didn't realize just how much how many of the foods that you see in all different cultures um how many of them do have some sort of fermenting process absolutely and I think one of the beautiful things about that is that for a lot of folks especially for immigrants moving into a different country this is the tradition that they bring with them and oftentimes this becomes a sacred time um, a sacred time with family as as they, um, you know, uh, work with the produce and work with the things that they're fermenting. Um, there's there's something really beautiful. And I mean, I just experienced this sacred time with my mom. We made blueberry jam um, and she showed me how to do it. And then a couple of days later, I went out and I got raspberries and I made my own raspberry jam mm-hmm. while she was watching over my shoulder just to make sure that I got it right. Um, mm-hmm. So there's something really, really beautiful and sacred about uh, doing these sorts of things in the company of family and in yes. the company of friends. That's so true. My grandma made the most delicious strawberry jam Mm. and it was something she would just make batches and batches of it and every summer we'd go and visit her and she would always give us a couple of jars and I remember her coming I got really determined I think I was 11 or 12 and I said oh come on out she came all the way to our house and she spent an afternoon with me showing me how to make jam Mm. and I've never made it since (laughs) it kind of overwhelmed me um (laughs) again just the unfamiliarity right of like oh you have to make sure the jars are sterile and um see but here's here's the way that we got around it because mom and I were like no not well I mean you can do it that way but there's a way of doing freezer jam and so you make the jam as you normally would and then you just put it in glass or plastic. Probably plastic is better just because it, it won't shatter in the freezer. Um, but you just put it in the freezer and you do small portions because, I mean, without all the preservatives, the artificial preservatives, we'll say, um, it it can go bad faster than, than regular jam or jelly that you'd get at the supermarket. But um, you just, you put small containers in the freezer and that's it. Like that'll, yeah. yeah. Um, so I have a couple of containers of the blueberry jam in the freezer right now. I just moved. Uh, so that was the first thing. (laughs) Yep. That was the first thing to go in the freezer. Um, and then I, right, right. So I can open that up at any time, um, and really enjoy that blueberry. We did some lemon zest and lemon juice in it as well, which was so good. Blueberries and lemon are classic. 
Um, but I can open that up in the, the middle of the winter and, and really enjoy that. So there's something really special about that, um, that idea of being able to preserve the season in, in one way or another. Um, it's just yes. really neat. Mm. I love that. You wrote that in, um, when we were preparing for this episode, I loved how you phrased tasting summer in the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that reminds me of my first fall living in Boston. I was living in an intentional community with seven other people and all very, very different sort of dietary needs and relationships to food. And, um, but one thing we loved was going to Haymarket, which, um, is sort of like the middlemen, for lack of a better word, but it's folks who sell produce that is a little bit past its peak from supermarkets at a really, really cheap price. Mm-hmm. So you can buy like 10 pounds of veggies for two bucks. Um, but there was one summer when we went and we bought all these tomatoes um, and one of our housemates knew how to can them and taught us. And so we had all this like fresh tomato sauce stocked for the winter. Wow. Um, and Boston winters are long, as we all know. <laughs> um, and so we were able to have that that taste of summer when it was snowing and freezing in February. And mm. it was a really it was a really cool way for us to come together as a community, too. And um so I will, yeah, I'll always treasure that, that memory of doing that together. Yeah. I think what I really, what I really love about this entire conversation is that it, it not only surrounds around the food, but it surrounds around people. It surrounds us in terms of the communities that we're a part of in the midst of trying to find community Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you're, you're in a new place, we have mm-hmm. these, these ties, right? Like we remember how to do something, even if, um, we haven't done it in a really long time. And that ties us directly back to the people that we love. Well, Christy, going back to preserving time, I love that image that you gave at the beginning of the camera negative the film negative mm-hmm. and how it captures this moment and in the same way I'm thinking of of the jam or of the tomato sauce that was made in Boston or mm-hmm. it, it's these moments these concrete moments uh just like when we share recipes with one another so again it's that preservation of time or or maybe that continuation of a ritual that brings us back to people that maybe that maybe um travels across across time or or um barriers in time how does all of this relate for for the two of you just from a spiritual perspective or in your own spiritual practice I think for me particularly because sourdough is probably the the thing that I make the most that has to do with kind of fermentation practices. And um, mm-hmm. it really is a way to kind of ground me in Sabbath. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes when I mentally, when I'm thinking, oh, it might be nice to like have fresh made, freshly made sourdough this weekend, I'll kind of get stuck or I'll, 
let myself get stuck because I think, oh, it's so labor intensive and it takes so long. And, Mm -hmm. um, but when I commit to it, it's really, it's just a really grounding practice. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think there's so much, I just think there's so much woven throughout the Christian story, speaking as a Christian about, um, just these rhythms of rest and rising and that both of those are deeply important. Um, yeah, I just, the more that I learn about and talk about food and also read the Bible, the more I see how intrinsic themes about soil and land, um, and how time is really woven into that are just so integral to what it, for me, to what it means to be a Christian. Um, yeah. So, but I think in my everyday life, there's, there's like a Sabbath rhythm that comes with fermentation and preservation. And I would really love to learn. I'd love to learn more about, like I've never made jam before, or I would love to try making beer, but I think getting back to some of our fears, like I just know that I would mess that up. Um, but yeah. I love what, I, I really appreciate that ex- kind of your, your thought process sometimes that happens when you want to gear up to make that sourdough because it sounds delicious. And then it's like, ah, this is going to take two days. So (laughs) maybe not. Uh, It feels, we call it this time intensive activity, right? And yet if you think about it, it's actually a very not intensive activity because it, it it gives you this for myself. I find I have freedom it kind of helps structure my day when I do something like that. And I totally, I, I, you know, try to, to halt even starting because I, I already at the beginning, like you said, I'm kind of nervous about how much time it's going to take. But if I commit to the, to that, um, that journey, it's, it's pretty cool. Time actually steps in as a co-creator with me Mm. so you know Mm. I'm mixing the dough for five minutes and then time and temperature and yeast they're doing all the heavy lifting really right and I go and I drink a cup of tea or I do the dishes or I read you know and so there's Mm. almost this uh, collaborative aspect of of the fermentation process that in some ways I think humans try to preserve in order to kind of stop time or stop the natural progression of seasons and decay. And yet Mm. nature hands us um, through yeast and microbes, these beautiful little uh, um, (laughs) co-travelers who help us out to, to restructure how we think about time in mm-hmm. the first place. Yeah, really well said. Yeah, I I love that you referred to time as a co-creator. That's just, that's really beautiful. Um, I'm just, I'm sitting on that for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, 
one of the things that I'm also seeing as well is we're talking about recipes and we're talking about families and we're talking about people and friends and and the things that we get from our friends, whether it's sourdough starter, whether it's recipes, um, whether it's seeds or plants or seedlings. Um, my mom has a habit of <laughs> taking clippers in her purse wherever she goes and she'll <laughs> clip a little thing if she's at a park. And I'm like, mom, stop. <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing right it's really that. really cool because she's able to see a tree in its fullness and then she's able to to root it and then plant it in her own yard like it's oh. just it's the coolest thing and I think when it's I think really about it cool right right um when I think about time and fermentation and seeds and preserving time um what really comes to mind is almost like an incarnate realization of of everything that we see before us and the recipe and then suddenly a transformed incarnate body of whatever that is whether that's the plant whether that's the um the fruit preserves whether that's kombucha or some sort of alcoholic Mm. product like it's a transformed product it's the same thing it's just been transformed and incarnate in a new body and in a new way um so that's very metaphysical Mm. (laughs) Um, it's also almost 11 o'clock on a tuesday night this is what we talk about (laughs) theologians (laughs) (laughs) But how <laughs> true, Christy, how true. Yeah. Really. I mean, both parts, the 11 p.m. <laughs> late night conversations. But also, <laughs> how true is that? That not that what's also happening to us? Um, you know, sometimes really? I'm, I'm going through my mini decade crisis <laughs> coming up <laughs> on a new decade. And um and I put so many expectations on what this time should look like. Mm. And mm. I know that's not the real story. You know, mm. I know yes. that, yeah, that I'm um, being transformed in ways that I can't see in my own time. Absolutely. Or in, in the time of, of this universe. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That reminds me of, um, so a big part of my job is supporting young people who feel a call to ministry, whatever that might look like. Um, and I'm helping run a program for high school students. Um, so this past week we were in DC and before that we were on the Hendricks campus, um, doing lots of kind of discernment oriented conversations. And they took a class with a Hendricks professor on worship and then, a class on spiritual formation and did a lot of deep listening and it's a really, really thoughtful um, program that I'm just really excited to have sort of inherited and keep going. And, but just a nugget of wisdom that one of our students shared that I just has just stuck with me is um, so they were sharing on Saturday with their parents. We had kind of a closing ceremony, and she said, the thing that I've learned the most these past two weeks is that I don't have to have it all figured out. Um, she said, I've learned that whatever my call 
looks like. It's going to always be there. And I just wanted to say, if you can remember this now from age 17 on through whatever comes after high school, um, I mean, that's it. Like, and what a countercultural thing to express and to embody. And I think... I think the three of us have shared that a lot here and then just as friends, like the struggle of being okay with, not just being okay with uncertainty, but trusting that the road that we walk is going to transform us, even if we don't feel like we're seeing that right away. Um, So, yeah, so I just think that it's so important to come back to grace um in the idea that things are happening under the soil what you know take that metaphorically or not um that we can't see but that are just pretty magical so if i can close us with um with a quote Mm. this has been a quote that's been showing up for me a lot this year. I keep turning back to it. And please remind me if I've already shared this one. But um, it's by Brian Andres, or Andreas, might be saying that wrong. And someone handed it to me when I was 21. And it's this picture, this abstract picture of a person carrying a balloon slash clock image. And the quote goes, everything changed the day she figured out there was exactly enough time for the important things in her life. That's really beautiful. And I'm not sure how that fits in with preserving time, but I think the whole nature and spirit of that preservation somehow comes down to this well thank you so much for joining us tonight or whenever you happen to be listening to this podcast um, for more information about preserving time whether that's making preserves we're going to include some recipes whether that's making pickles um, we're going to have lots of resources for you. In fact, probably too many resources for you uh, for this episode, but you can just go to our website for all of our show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you so much for joining us at the table. We would love to hear from you. Let us know what you think by leaving a rating on iTunes. Or if you have show ideas, comments, or just want to reach us directly, send us an email at fully.yours.podcast at gmail.com. For today's show notes, our blog, and more, be sure to check us out at fullyyourspodcast.com. Huge thanks to Steve Dry and Catalyst of Harvard Epworth United Methodist Church, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, for their generous grant funding of this podcast. Shout out to the talented Joel Adams and Melody Stanford Martin for producing the original song featured in this podcast. Also to Melody for our gorgeous logo design and to our dream team for keeping us grounded and inspired. Until next time, we are fully yours. <laughs>